Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi, everybody, and I'm so glad that you are here to join me today for this very informative show that's going to be featuring Dr. John Putholi and Dr. Peter Phillips, both of these doctors have had a very long career in pediatrics, and our focus will be regarding Dr. John's newly released book, When Your Child Has Cancer, Insights and Information to Empower Parents. I want to welcome both of you today to the show. Thanks for joining me again, Dr. John. I thank you for having me. I thank our listeners, and I also thank Dr. Peter for joining this conversation. Well, I was going to say the same thing. Dr. Peter, welcome to your inaugural show on the Born to Talk radio show. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's it's going to be a very important show, and I'm delighted that I have two experts in the field. And the way I can help our listeners understand that is by just letting them know a little bit about yourself. So, Dr. John, and I call you Dr. John effectively because, affectionately, is because that's how people know you. So please tell us uh, just a little bit about yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, Thank you for asking. I went to medical school in India. I did my internship in Scotland. I did residency and fellowship in the United States and Canada. I'm certified in pediatrics and allergy and immunology. Yes, that's all true, because the last time we spoke, my friend, it was all about COVID, because you definitely are an expert in that area as well, but that's not today's focus. And yes, you have written four books, which I think is very impressive. Dr. Peter, I'm going to just, since I'm calling him Dr. John, I'm going to call you Dr. Peter. Um, tell, sure. It's just so nice having you here. Please tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. Um well, I was trained, uh, I'm, I have been trained both as a pediatrician, um, as a neurologist, and an oncologist. Uh, I did my uh, pediatrics training at Children's in Boston, and my neurology training at Columbia Presbyterian in New York, and my oncology training at Sloan Kettering. Um, and then after that, I spent uh, about five years uh, at Johns Hopkins. Um, in their neurology and oncology programs, and then and since that time, I've been uh, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, as the uh, uh, chief of the neuro oncology program, uh, which I continue to do so until about two years ago. At which point, after 35 years, I thought it was time to move to a, a younger younger uh, generation. So we've gone on. And by that, do you mean are you are you a professor? Are you currently a professor? Yes, I'm a professor of neurology and oncology. 
at University of Pennsylvania, uh, and I am still seeing patients, uh, but my uh, laboratory research uh, is finished. Uh, I'm still doing clinical research. I see. All right. Well, um, from one side of the country to the other, you know, you are um, in a part of the country that's going to be seeing fall foliage before we know it, and here we just hope our trees don't burn down, frankly. But having said that, oh, that was a real positive way to start this. Um, let me just say well, this. Well, actually, we're, we're starting to – we're actually seeing in Philadelphia um, some uh, some some leaf changes. So, yes, we're we're absolutely there. Lovely. I, I love that. I, Dr. John, where you live, do you see fall foliage as well? Uh, not quiet, just a few, but uh, yeah. not much. Yeah, same here with me. Well, that's so we're not we're not talking about the weather and the trees today, but what we are going to be talking about really is a very significant subject, and that's and that's your book, Dr. John. So the name of your book, as I said, is When Your Child Has Cancer. What I'd like to know is how did the, how did that all come about? What was the inspiration for writing this this fourth book of yours? Well, about nine years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. After I finished a talk about surviving cancer to an audience, one member of the audience, a cancer specialist, asked me, how can a child who has not lived long enough to accumulate gene mutations develop cancer? And that was about three to four years ago, and that started me thinking, how can that be? So the result of that thought process is the book, When Your Child Has Cancer. Wow. So you did a lot of research on the subject, I know, and that is truly that is truly what we're going to be talking about today. And I want people to know that as we go through this, um, there is hope. And um, I, I think that that's a significant reason why this show is important, not only for the hope, but for the for the information so that you can get what you need to know. Maybe maybe you know somebody that has a, a, a family member that has a child with cancer. You know, maybe you're a school teacher. Who, whatever it is that you do that maybe would put you in connection with somebody that's dealing with this right now, this show is really designed specifically for you. But for the rest of us that don't have this particular circumstance in our lives, I think it's still very vital that we know about this. And so with that in mind, Dr. Peter, since you are a neurology oncologist and that seems to be a very specialized area, how did you, how did you choose to go into this field? But what was the, what was the draw? Yeah, so I, I kind of um, uh, backed into it to a certain extent. Uh, I found when I was in medical school um, that uh, the uh, the science of uh, of neurobiology uh, was intellectually fascinating to me. Um, when I got into my pediatrics training, uh, I found that the um, the medicine uh, and the uh, the uh, the demand and challenge of oncology. Uh, was terribly exciting to me. Uh, and so I had the opportunity to put them both together. You know, 
um, it seems like it's uh, something that's pretty esoteric or uh, unusual, but in point of fact, um, childhood brain tumors are the most common solid tumor uh, in children, uh, and it's second only to leukemia. So it's a relatively common issue that we deal with. Uh, so as specialized as it sounds, um, it's uh, an, an, a critical part of childhood cancer treatment. I see. Is there a difference between brain tumors? Well, let me let, let me let me even before I even ask you that because I want to really simplify this because I figure if I don't know, maybe somebody else doesn't know. Just the term brain tumor, which just sounds horrifying, does that automatically mean that it's cancerous? Well. Uh, tumor means I'm swelling. Sorry. Tumor means and swelling, okay. In point, yeah, and, and in point of fact, uh, there are some um, tumors uh, that we encounter that, you know, uh, adults encounter. Uh, it's uncommon in children, but uh, that, aren't, that are not cancers. Look, you can have a lipoma uh, on, under your skin uh, and it can continue to grow and accumulate fatty tissue. Um, I, and that's not a cancer. It's a swelling. It ends in oma. It's a tumor, but it's not a cancer. But in point of fact, the vast majority of what we deal with in children are cancers. Some of them are very non-aggressive um, and can be cured by surgery alone. Uh, some of them are very aggressive and uh, require multiple different ways of treating them. So even though we say it's a cancer, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that what we're dealing with is a life or death issue. I see. But is there a difference between, and you know, when you said OMA, I'm thinking, what the heck does that mean? Oh, melanoma, carcinoma, I get it. There you have it. Exactly. Keep in mind. Exactly. Well, hey, Anything that ends in OMA in this kind of situation tends to be a tumor. It's just, I think it should be, oh, my God, but never mind. Um, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Just my two cents worth. Okay, but there is a difference, and, and, and Dr. John was sort of alluding to this at the opening when he was talking about this. So I thought maybe you could just allude or just give us a little bit more information about the difference between brain tumors in adults and, and brain tumors in children. Sure. Well, John is absolutely right that um, in brain tumors and in other kinds of tumors, uh, that the patterns that we see uh, with respect to the gene alterations, uh, the chromosome alterations, the mutations um, in children and adults are different. Uh, kids uh, get um, many different kinds of tumors, brain tumors. There are more than 20 different kinds of brain tumors. And unlike adults, which, have, which predominantly have one kind, which is called a glioma, uh, which represents almost 75% of tumors in 
uh, adults, um, there's no tumor in kids that represents uh, more than about 20% of the pie. So we have lots and lots of different kinds of tumors. Every cell in the brain has the potential to become a tumor. Um, so we're dealing with uh, a big variety, um, and we're dealing with tumors that tend to arise uh, as mistakes of uh, normal, de normal brain development. Does that help? So, well, so I, I, you know, um, doctor, um, I'm taking notes. Yeah. So if I if I understand what I just wrote, so I can read my own handwriting, because like you guys, I also can't write well, um, and maybe I've made a judgment that was incorrect. So if I that's true, I apologize. But my doctor, no, I, I, I don't. Never... I, my handwriting's terrible. <laughs> what is it with you guys? What about you, John? Can can people read your handwriting? Uh, not anymore. But uh, <laughs> the, 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 there is always a saying, if you cannot read your doctor's handwriting, take it to a pharmacist. He will decipher it for you. <laughs> I That's love right. that. That's a funny one. So in reading my own handwriting here, so if I understood what you said, that basically the, 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 the takeaway difference that I heard was that, that adults only have one kind of OMA, one well, kind of brain. Well, they predominantly have predominantly. Uh, gle uh, right, uh, tumors that arise from the white matter, uh, what are called gliomas. And they tend to be um, aggressive and tend to be um, deadly and tend to be the kinds of tumors that John McCain uh, and Teddy Kennedy died from. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they are the same kind of tumors that John Biden's Sorry, Joe Biden's uh, uh, son. son died from. Right. Okay. Where with children, uh, there's like more than 20 types of brain that's tumor. That's correct. Okay. So I got that right. I can read that. Cool. So, Dr. John, I know you've written this yes. book. And I know that that's really what we want to talk about. So I don't have the book in front of me, but I know a little bit about your book. What should parents, what should the role of parents be for a child who is living with cancer? How, I don't even know how a parent copes with that role, but what, what would you recommend? What does your book talk about in that regard? Well, let me point out four factors. Number one okay. is make sure that the child does not feel responsible for the condition. Number okay. two, Make the household functioning as normal as can be under the circumstances. That, in turn, reassures the child. Number three, this is very important. Never show anxiety in the presence of the child. Wow. They can read your face. You may be anxious about something totally different, but in their mind, they feel, oh, there's something wrong with me, or I did something I wrong. So don't show anxiety in the presence of the child. Mm -hmm. Number four, you almost have to become a detached but extremely interested, quote-unquote, outsider and help your child draw logical conclusions based on available, reliable data and the help of experts. So these are the four points I stress in the book. Okay, and I suppose 
that so make sure that the child doesn't feel like this was my fault for getting it. Yes. Let's say you have three or four children, two children, maybe just the one child, to keep your household as normal, although today what's normal as possible. Yes. Um, don't show the anxiety in the presence of your child because maybe your anxiety has to do with your job or maybe your anxiety right. has to do with whatever is going on in the world. And the child's going, uh-oh, 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 and they're thinking it's all about them. Yeah. And I think the last thing you said was, to somehow be detached, I don't know how that happens, as an outsider so that you can sort of approach your t- child not as a parent but just more data-based. Is that, is, did I get that right? Is that what you mean? Well, see, or no? the human brain works at three different levels. There is the input level, which is called cognitive. We get up using our senses and internal signaling. The second is the intellectual level or analytical level. That is where we solve the problems. The third is the emotional level where we feel based on the analysis. What I'm trying to say is suppress the emotional part. Deal with the problem, okay, what are the issues today and how, how can I address it? What is the solution? That is where you should be as a parent of a child with cancer. So you want to stay more in the, if I if I understand this, more in the intellectual analytical level. Is that right? Correct. Okay, cool. Boy, master class. All right, that's cool. Well, you know, I I can only imagine. I I I well, no, you're right. I can only imagine because I've never faced this situation before, and and I'm, it must be so frightening. Um, but um, let me ask you this, Dr. Peter. Um, are there some big changes in childhood brain tumor treatment that you've come to know over this past decade? Have there is there improvements? Yes, but can I go back for one second and just sure, comment please. on some of the things that John said? You know, what Absolutely. he had to say is so close uh, to many of the things that I have said over the course of the last 40 years. Um, that it's remarkable that he's not a pediatric oncologist. Um, And I think that one of the things that I would like to to emphasize that I say to parents is, as difficult as it is, this is the time that you have to be one of the best actors uh, that you can possibly be. Uh, And so when John says, don't, you know, don't show your anxiety. I think the the issue is also uh, don't share it. Don't uh, you have to be confident? If you are confident, your child reads that. Mm-hmm. If you're not confident, uh, your child reads that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to move forward with a level of confidence. And I fully agree with what he had to say. Um, yes. You know, it's very so, interesting. Go no, finish your thought because I wanted to jump on what you just said. Go right ahead. Well, no, no, I, no, I jump in, jump in because uh, you know I think that uh, this is a terribly difficult area. That uh, this is. is something that we, um, as physicians, uh, deal with all the time. But as a parent, um, it's the biggest catastrophe of your life. Absolutely, and I, you know. For those of you listening, 
I would also say that you could apply that to something that is not as life-threatening. If if we are carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders and we are per, per, uh, presenting ourselves that way and you are with anybody that's intuitive, they're going to see it and they're going to feel it. I had one of those days this morning myself that has nothing to do with this subject but had everything to do with where my shoulders were. And I could feel my emotions. And I thought, you need to you need to stop. You need to pull this back. And you need to get control. And if that means that you're acting, fine. Believe it. Believe it. Because I would say that what you just said about being confident – I think that if your child is is reading you and they're looking to you like, oh, my God, oh, my God, and you're looking at them with a smile that says, we're in this together and we've got this and I'm on your team and you mean it and you sound like you're the, the coach and you're the quarterback or whatever, I would guess that that would make the child feel like, oh, gosh, that makes me feel so much better. I, I can really see the logic behind that, truly. Um, I can. Um, I I would say that, um, so just very briefly, have there been some major changes in this past decade that we're making progress with? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I want to get across to your listeners is that we're in the beginning of a revolution, okay? And um, the revolution uh, is... Uh, something that has come to us and made possible uh, by the technology uh, of being able to uh, assess at a very detailed level uh, the human genome, human DNA, um, and uh, looking for ways in which that um, starts tumors, stops tumors, affects their growth the whole nine yards. Uh, So look, um, from the 1950s through the year 2000, we had basically one target for cancer therapy, and that target was DNA, is DNA. Um, Our radiation therapy affects uh, and damages DNA much more so in tumors than in normal tissue. And so we're able to use that to a therapeutic advantage. Um, The chemotherapy that we use, uh, by and large, uh, targets DNA, Um, whether DNA formation or disrupts DNA, but DNA is the target. So we've gone, oh, not quite 50 years uh, focusing on one target. Now we have, we are opening up many, many different strategies. Um, these processes are allowing, um, you know, new, new treatment approaches, new targets, new um, ways of treating tumors that are potentially uh, very effective. And this has been a strategy which um, I think your listeners probably have encountered in reading as, uh, as being very successful in um, certain aspects of breast cancer and in lung cancer. Um, but it's a very exciting time for us. It's also a very challenging time um, because there are so many choices, uh, so many 
uh, so much new data uh, that uh, it's taking a great deal of time to to uh, kind of piece this all together. And then the third part to it is that um, after many, many decades of going back to the laboratory and trying to figure out how we can use immunology um, against uh, various tumors. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now in the process of kind of combining both our uh, knowledge of the human genome uh, and the genetic consequences uh, of tumors together with immunology for uh, a different kind of therapeutic strategy. So there are, new, there are all sorts of new things that are coming up, but they're at the beginning. Okay. Well, good. But if, so well, let's go back um, some more to your book, Dr. John. And um, do you have some specific activity recommendations for children to do during their cancer treatment? Yes. Uh, it is critically important to keep the child engaged. Physical activity of a child with cancer could be influenced by the condition and the treatment. Mm -hmm. In the book, I suggest a number of activities such as reading, listening to stories, meditation with music, interactions with pets or, or animals, gardening, cooking, just some simple idle conversations, mm -hmm. video games and screen time with friends, just to keep the child mentally active. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can see that that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and as I said earlier, I know that our focus is children with cancer, but frankly, those activities that you just recommended are probably precisely what families need to do with their school-aged children that are doing learning at home. They're being isolated from their friends, and this couldn't be a more difficult time for a healthy child to also navigate these waters. So I think your information is transferable for that as well. Um, Diet plays a part in this, though, too, right, doesn't it, Dr. John? I mean, diet, I believe, I know that you have a, a strong feeling about that. So how does diet contribute to managing um, the possibility of even eliminating cancer, if that's possible? Well, let's start with uh, what Dr. Peter was telling us about the cancer, the, the new research. From a, a layman's perspective, Every cancer starts with a stem cell. A stem cell is a mother cell that produces baby cells, usually in the body to heal a wound or replace lost cells secondary to an infection or blood loss. The, the mother cells are stem cells. Okay. In adults, a cancer stem cell is formed due to accumulation of gene mutations. In children, I suggest that it is due to a developmental anomaly starting in the fetus. A mother needs energy and nutrients to create a baby, and she gets these from energy nutrients and essential nutrients in the diet. 
The cancer stem cell also needs energy and materials to keep producing new baby cells. Blood glucose is the primary nutrient cancer stem cells use both as fuel as well as to fabricate new baby cells. And that is where the diet comes in. Okay. Wow. All right. So so we're talking in vitro. We're talking that you're suggesting that, um, I don't suggesting is maybe the word I meant, but you're saying that that sometimes what you're saying is what that what that pregnant woman is eating, what she's ingesting, is affecting how that baby is developing and growing, and that the diet is can be directly correlated to these baby cells that are growing in in that baby. Is that right? The the just like a newborn baby in the mother's womb or baby before. The developing baby in the mother's womb needs nutrients. The cancer stem cells use nutrients to produce new baby cancer cells. So the diet is key in either case. So if we can interfere with that feeding pattern of the cancer stem cell, we can control cancer growth. Oh, wow. Wow, I wonder how many... Um, doctors are talking about this with their with their pregnant women today. That's really fascinating. I mean, I, that's that's a that's that's heavy. That, but it doesn't sound like it's. While it might be something that I mean, I, my kids are in their middle forties, um, but for for people that are considering having a family now, I can see where more than ever based on the new research, how valuable a diet can be. So are there some foods that you recommend that um, people avoid? Um, That is a very important question as far as my book is concerned. I just mentioned the cancer stem cells use preferentially glucose to produce energy as well as materials to fabricate new cancer cells. Most people, when they think about blood glucose, which is also known as blood sugar, they automatically think it is all about table sugar. Mm -hmm. However, in the modern day diet, table sugar is not the main source of blood glucose or blood sugar, it is grains that produce the most amount of glucose in the body when they are digested. So my suggestion is limit the intake of wheat, oats, rice, corn, and other grains and grain flour-based foods that provide an abundance of glucose for cancer cells to feed on. So if you don't feed the cancer cell, you can control the rate of multiplication. That is the key. Wow. So just to get what you said again, so you're talking about the grains, that we're not talking about that sugar you put on your Cheerios. We're talking about limiting grains, and you mentioned wheat, oat, rice, corn. 
did I miss one? No, that's about it. There okay. are other grains. Right. And so and so I don't I didn't hear you say you may not or I'm not you're you're not the parent, but I'm just saying you're not saying to these to pregnant women or anyone for that matter, you would probably offer this suggestion to anybody listening that by limiting those grains you are limiting the amount of glucose that's coming into your body that you are sharing in vitro with your child. Yes. Did I get that right? Okay. So is there anything besides just grains that you recommend that should be monitored? That is the primary thing as far as the cancer cell growth is concerned. Okay. Are there foods? Well, I guess, you know, um, I'd like, you know, this is such an interesting subject, and, and I, I think the wonderful thing about doing a podcast is that for those people that are listening to it live and perhaps taking notes the way I am, you can go back and re-listen to it to pick up this information should you not be writing in shorthand to just re reiterate, not to mention by all means buying the book because it's all in the book. And let me just mention the name of the book one more time so if people are listening, they know. And I'm going to actually spell your last name too, Dr. John. So your last name is spelled P-O-O-T-H-U-L-L-I-L. And the name of the book is When Your Child Has Cancer. Is that available now um, um, for people to purchase? Is it is it out there on Amazon or where people buy their books? Yes. Okay, great. So when your child has cancer, insights and information to empower parents. I, I can see the title is so, so significant um, when you're given this, this diagnosis. And I, I can only imagine what happens in a family um, maybe dad sees it one way, mom sees it another way, but your book is neutral. Your book allows people to just read it and gather the information, which is why you wrote it, which I think is so inspiring. Uh, Dr. Peter, what are your thoughts um, based on your background about diet and childhood thea- um, thea- therapeutic modalities? What, what are your thoughts about this? Well, <clears throat> diet is a complicated subject, um, uh-huh. and uh, John and I have talked about this uh, in in detail. Uh, there's actually a lot of work that's being currently done um, as it relates to uh, the role of sugar, um, uh, excess sugar, <clears throat> and um, the risk of cancer. Um, and, it incre- and in many circumstances, it can certainly increase one's risk of developing cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is um, having uh, the condition of obesity uh, mm-hmm. or the condition of particularly type 2 diabetes. Right. Um, and so, there's, so there, are, uh, there is a whole developing literature uh, about... Uh, the role of high sugar uh, amounts <clears throat> and increasing your risk of cancers. There's no question about that. Nutrition for us as 
as uh, oncologists um, is also a very important topic um, because uh, if kids are not getting an adequate nutrition, which can certainly happen because you're feeling lousy, um, because the treatments decrease your appetite or make things, uh, make it so that you don't, uh, the way that you taste things is different than it used to be. Um, <clears throat> so that uh, I, we are often dealing with kids who are having difficulty maintaining um, good nutrition. And we work very closely with, uh, with uh, people in the dietary sciences uh, to develop uh, good meal planning for them um, and keeping up their nutrition so that their bodies can fight uh, and their, their cells can grow back and that they can do the best they possibly can. So keeping good nutrition is particularly important. I think that um, the issue with respect to whether or not um, uh, kids are going to do better with a low glucose um, diet uh, in terms of treating particular tumors, you know, it's going to be almost a situation in which we're dealing tumor by tumor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly circumstances in adults in which people have tried to go on what's called a very rigid ketogenic diet. Right. And your, your, um, your listeners have probably heard about uh, the ketogenic diet. Well, in, in neurology, we have used the ketogenic diet um, for decades now, um, doing it extremely rigidly um, and being very effective in certain kinds of epilepsies. Oh. Um, so we have a whole history of being able to do this. We know that um, getting kids to a point in which uh, if they just have a little bit of sugar and it breaks the ketogenic diet, it makes them have seizures again. Okay, So oh. we know it works in that kind of situation. <clears throat> We've tried it, uh, the ketogenic diet, in uh, circumstances of certain kinds of very aggressive tumors. And we haven't really been able to see an effect on it yet. Okay? Dr. John is absolutely right that uh, tumors um, don't use um, glucose very efficiently. Therefore, they have to use it, they have to get a lot of it. Okay? It's, called, it's a special cancer ter- or term called the Warburg effect. Uh, and uh, we know that, that, uh, that that's an issue. But um, whether or not we're going to be able to um, substantively change how, what we're doing or even eliminate what we're, uh, some of the treatments like radiation therapy or certain chemotherapies is going to be a question that's going to go tumor by tumor. I see. Wow, that's a heavy subject because I guess, like you said, you know, we've we've been talking mostly about brain tumors, but I mean, in reality, these tumors can 
appear anywhere in the body, correct? It doesn't, doesn't sure. necessarily need to be in the brain. It relates to leukemia also. Right. Yeah. Right. It's... Wow, it's it's a it's it's a lot to think about, and I I guess I'm just considering what that must be like for the parent, for the child, for the sibling, for the grandparents. Um, it, it's 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 definitely a family trauma, is is how I would call it, based on no experience. But certainly, there has to be ways for people to. As you said, Dr. John, in the beginning, um, for those children to find some sense of normality, to you know play with that pet, to maybe get in the yard, to kick the ball, capable of doing based on their own strength and abilities and discomfort. Um, what when what do you, what things, oh, Dr. John? What things do you feel are most important for parents? to do when their child has been diagnosed with cancer? What 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 are your recommendations? Well, uh, Dr. Peter can address it more than I can, but in my book what I'm suggesting is, first of all, talk honestly to understand what is on the child's mind. Their mind obsesses with the fear of the unknown. There is... Because, this is because the more one thinks about a bad situation, the more their mind gets dragged deeper and deeper into a state of all-consuming obsession and self-pity. For example, the child may feel responsible for all the disruption of normal home life. Mm-hmm. However, even in even those who feel overwhelmed by very frightening thoughts can calm down with time in an environment of support from parents friends and professionals so that is what the parents have to keep in mind everybody is going to go through this but how best we can cope with it as a family Right. Do you do you find that a lot of families do um, seek out professional counseling support in that way to to help the children and and the parents alike? Uh, Doctor Peter can answer that better than I can. <laughs> okay. Um. So. So yeah, I mean, I can speak to the places that I've worked, um, and that uh, having. Um, a whole support network, both for parents and kids, is really, I think, critical. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, what we used to call um, play therapists, but really uh, child life therapists, um, <clears throat> who are working with and playing with the kids, uh, but playing with them intentionally in the sense of kind of um, modeling some of the activities that they're going to be going through, physical examination issues, um, getting IVs, getting blood tests, the whole nine yards, but play acting um, with them and getting them to a point in which they are as relaxed as they possibly can be in the medical environment. For the parents, um, we, we also have, we have psychologists um, who work with them, who kind of 
walk them through uh, as best can be done because every family is um, is going to be different. But walk them through the kind of steps that John's talking about, which is how do you how do you maintain a certain sense of uh, normality, um, a certain sense of objectivity, a certain sense of being able to move forward with confidence. Um, and, it, you know, it really, it truly t- it takes a team. This is not something that simply comes from doctors. It comes from right. doctors, it comes from nurses, it comes from child life, it comes from our psychologists, it comes from our social workers. Um, it comes from everybody who is encountering the family. And the thing that is so remarkable about taking care of kids um, as opposed to taking care of an adult is you're not treating just the kid. You're treating the whole family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I can see that. And, you know, it's it's as much... Treating, doing child, uh, childhood cancer treatment when done well is as much psychology and psychiatry uh, as it is uh, oncology. Mm-hmm. It's as much being a coach uh, for the family and for the child uh, as anything else. It's as much setting a, uh, a standard for optimism and moving forward, because uh, if you if you can't really see uh, any hope, um, then there's no point in getting up in the morning. Right, that's true. I I, I would agree with that. Uh, you, I know you've read the book. I know you've endorsed the book. I know that you have a tremendous amount of respect for Dr. John. What do you see as the big takeaway message from his book? Well, I think that this is, a, is an excellent book in terms of um, empowering parents. Um, that this is, you know, parents are not oncologists. Parents are not doctors. Parents are encountering uh, a, a terrible situation. And how do you begin to structure your response to it? And so uh, what John has done, has talked about, is um, uh, how you can, how you need to maintain your activity, your attitude, your support, um, things that you can do to actually continue that process of moving forward, as well as good nutrition, um, which is a critical component to being good. Uh, you know, you can't, if I, I know, I know the commercial of uh, expression of being hangry, but uh, if you are nutritionally depleted and you're extremely fatigued and you're feeling lousy, uh, it's really hard to move forward. Yeah. Um, and so many of the things that he's talked about, I think, are, are excellent ideas in terms of good nutrition good mental health, good physical right. health. Yeah, I you know, I I would agree and and I guess to the level that you can do that, maybe your physical health isn't 
maybe the same that it was before diagnosis, but, you know, whatever that might look like, to, we know we all feel better if we move, and if that child can get some physical help, can get some 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 good nutritional help, can get some good mental health, I can see how that all really contributes and why this book is so so valuable. And Dr. John, you you mentioned that cooking with children um, contributes to successful treatment. Um, I would say probably cooking with anybody is probably good for all of us. What is it about cooking? <laughs> what is it about cooking that that is so empowering? Well, first of all, it entertains them. It, secondly, it keeps their mind off thinking about their own condition. It aids in reducing stress and provides them with valuable life lessons in appreciating nutrition, good health, and eventually the enjoyment of food. If you want to make your child eat a vegetable, what better way than asking him to help you cook it? That child is curious now, how does it taste? So. It is a whole way of teaching them the value of nutrition. In order to have immune system that is healthy, human body needs over 100 different nutrients, and you cannot get it from any one food or any one dish or diet group or food group. But if you eat a variety of vegetables supplemented with spices, herbs, mushrooms, you can get a whole lot of nutrients that your body needs. And the child learns that in that environment. Yeah, there are some um, nutritional benefits. Is turmeric one of those spices you talk about? Yes, there are many of them. It all depends on what your body needs. Keep in mind, you can get the same nutrient from different nutrients in different parts of the world, but they all contain the same type of nutrient or human body needs the same nutrient no matter where you live. Mhm. Do you do you talk about that in your book? Do you do you list some suggestions on on some specific um you mentioned that we we all need 100 different nutrients. If you were to say to me Marsha, can you name five nutrients? I'd probably say a no. So in your book, do you do you actually identify what the, what some of those might be? Yes. Excellent. I can see where that would be really really helpful. Um, you know, I I like to to have a balance in my show. I don't want everybody to think that this is gloom. I, in fact, frankly, I haven't heard that from either one of you. To be honest with you, I don't hear you presenting yourself in a dark tunnel. Dr. Dr. Peter, are you, based on everything you know up to right now, and I suspect I know the answer to this, are you optimistic about the future of childhood cancer treatments? Well, you know, um, I don't think that one can go into oncology of any kind and not be optimistic. Um, that uh, look uh, on a statistical basis, on a on a population basis, yes, we're making uh, meaningful progress. 
No question about it. Number two, mm-hmm. we're understanding day by day um, much more about what we can, uh, uh, how we can control these tumors and how we can affect um, uh, better therapeutic outcomes. And when I say for children especially, better therapeutic outcomes, I'm talking about the fact that you know, they've got to – our goal is to have them live their lives fully and not be um, influenced by or, or affected by what we have done uh, in terms of trying to treat these tumors. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic um, I'm excited about the new treatments that are coming up uh, in terms of both immunotherapy as well as targeted therapy. Uh, I think they offer tremendous potential. Um, I think that even for the, for the relatively non-aggressive tumor types that we deal with, uh, like low-grade astrocytomas in, uh, in, the, in the brain, you know, um, these are things that we didn't have anything meaningful uh, to offer uh, 20 years ago. And now we have uh, many, many, many different choices, and the choices are increasing. So I, I think it's a very exciting time, um, and it's a very forward-looking time, um, and I am optimistic. And, and just so I'm reading my notes, remember, is the term you used... In, in, how, what's the therapy? Is I wrote down IMO, but I don't think that's what you said. What what is what is the what, if you said you have the new treatments? So one is one of it. Um, tell me again, so I can clearly understand what I've written. Okay, so new treatments that are coming up are targeted therapies um, that are looking at uh, ways in which different either biological. Uh, biochemical pathways uh, that control growth can be changed mm-hmm. um, to uh, to affect tumor growth or make it stop growing or die. Um, we're looking at immunotherapies, um, Immun- uh, immunological treatments in which we modify uh, certain aspects of the uh, of tumor cells or uh, we target, we, we change some of the ways in which the immune system uh, reads uh, the signals from tumors to go and uh, tell the rest of the body, go, and, go ahead and attack. Um, okay. This is a very, very exciting part of uh, a component of uh, leukemia therapy right now. So uh, there, there are many new ideas that are coming to fruition. Wonderful. Wow. So I guess I know we just have a few minutes left, and um, I want to ask you both the same question, which is it sounds to me like you have a a very demanding lifestyle. I don't want to say stressful. I don't want to say busy. I don't want to use any of those words. But I would like to know how you balance. How I'll start with with you, um, Peter, Dr. Peter. How do you balance after spending forty years taking care of children? How do you how do you avoid burning out? Um, I think that the uh, key to avoiding burning out is pacing. Uh, you know, we have to be able to, as 
oncologists, we have to be able to be emotionally uh, available to our patients and our families uh, in ways that can be terribly stressful. Um, Personally, I find that it's critical for me to exercise vigorously. Um, And so if I don't uh, get on the bike um, and uh, and spend you know a good period of time just revving up my heart rate and getting those endorphins going, um, I get cranky. Hmm. So physical activity uh, is critical for me for keeping my keeping my head straight. Great. How what about, about you, Doctor John? Yeah. Well, to me, the most motivating factors are the two subject matters that I have been uh, interested in the last 40 years, type 2 diabetes and cancer. I feel personally that endocrinologists and certified diabetic educators have not been honest with the American people about the cause and treatment of type 2 diabetes. And I get motivated when I hear about someone using less or no insulin after reducing the intake of grain-based foods to half of what they were consuming before. As for cancer, I would like to show how you could help oncologists use less medication through dietary changes that slows cancer growth and boosts the immune system. So for me personally, that is, if I can achieve those two objectives, I can keep going. You're not going to burn out. So you've got another book. You know, it's it's funny. I I want to mention the books that you have written. One was Eat, Chew, Live. Then you have a book specifically about diabetes. Then you have a book about surviving cancer. And now you have your latest book out. Um, One would wonder... So I'm going to ask you. You got a you got number five uh, uh, revving up on that computer of yours. You got another book in the uh, making? Not right now. You've given yourself a bit of a break, have you? Yes. How long did it take you to write this last book? I'm just curious, as somebody that's never written a book. The the last one is about almost three and a half to four years because remember uh, after I heard that question, I had to start thinking and researching. Right, right. Well, I, there's a lot of th- – and so I'm going to presume that just as Dr. Peter was saying, he needs pacing and he needs the physical exercise and that physical activity. Do you also have some form of physicality or meditation or yoga or something that you do that reduces some of the burnout for you? Yes, all of that. My wife and I walk for about an hour. I have my vegetable garden. I do my uh, yoga and exercises in the morning, and uh, I watch sports. So I keep my mind engaged or occupied with just yeah, medicine. That, right. There certainly does need to be a reason to, um, to balance. Um, I think just... As we've been talking so much, the the key word lately has so much been about um, the uncertainty of life and um, balance for all of us, regardless of where we are today, I think is vital. I know it is for me to keep in balance, whatever that might mean. Sometimes it's just a matter of just stepping outdoors, 
for me sometimes it's a matter of grabbing my camera and capturing that beautiful bird or that leaf on the ground. So I would recommend that who is ever listening today that you also find your level of balance and that you listen to podcasts, you listen to my show, you 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 come to appreciate what people are doing today that are making a difference, which is why the whole basis of my show of what I what I affectionately call those 3 Cs, conversation we're having plus connections which we've made equals community and it isn't just where we live certainly that's a community i'm very involved in my own personal community where i live but i have a community of remarkable people that have been joining me for so long almost five and a half years now each week sharing what's really important to them. And it's a privilege to have both of you on this show with me today. I've learned a lot. I think our listeners have learned a lot. I so recommend that people go out and get your book, Dr. John. And listen, in the process of listening to the stories about cancer, if someone in your family has diabetes, that's another that's another book that's available that Dr. John has written. So I say take advantage of the resources that these experts have in common because I've certainly appreciated your time with me today. I I, it's just it's been a pleasure, truly. Thank you so very much for being with me. Thank you. I've enjoyed it thoroughly also, so thank you. You're welcome. And to the rest of you, I say go out there, see if you can make a difference, start with yourself. One thing I learned from a guest a few weeks ago, in order to be kind to others, you need to start with knowing how to be kind to yourself. I will leave you with that. And I thank you once again for for always supporting me on this show. And I look forward to my show next week. Until next time, everybody, have a great week. Bye for now.